Well, I mentioned that psalm last week, Psalm 41. It's a messianic psalm, a prophetic psalm about Jesus. And today we're going to see the fulfillment of that. If you heard, one who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. We're going to see that here. Mark chapter 14. Again, verse 10. And reading through verse 26. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you there. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, finished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table... In eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, uh, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if that man had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as you already have blessed your word through singing and reading, that you will continue to bless it through the preaching and build the church and just um, glorify yourself. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're rapidly now approaching the arrest and the crucifixion of Christ in Mark's gospel. We've been in Mark's gospel for a while. And we're at the part that's known as the passion of the Christ or his a uh, week of suffering. Um, this is his suffering obedience. If you're here on Wednesday night, we talk a lot about the active and passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ is where he willingly um, obeyed the law of God perfectly, never sinned. He never crossed over or transgressed the law. He always obeyed it. He is the perfect Adam. He is the new Adam. He is the Adam that did what the original Adam could not do he obeyed the law. We call that the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience does not mean that he is passive and just whatever comes along, he takes it. But that's a Latin word that means suffering. So he not only actively obeyed the law and kept it and never sinned, but he also suffered for the will of God and for the people of God. Suffered very much, not just the stripes and the wounds and the bleeding and the plucking of his beard and the ridicule, but he suffered in anguish in his soul. He took on himself 
all the sin of all the people who would ever be born again. I can't even begin to imagine that, what that kind of suffering must be like. Uh, it's kind of captured in one of the songs we just sang, the idea of the father turning his face away from the son, though I don't believe he really did that. But we, uh, we acknowledge that at one point Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in this humanity? The anguish and the suffering of soul, not um, the, the whippings and the beatings, but the anguish of the sin of the whole uh, people of God being poured out upon him and the suffering of the wrath of God the Father. I don't think the Father was ashamed of him. I don't think he really looked away from him. I think the song just kind of tries to capture what it must have been like in Christ and his humanity taking on that suffering and feeling as though God the Father had forsaken him. But that's where we are, this passive obedience. The time of the Passover, in fact, is a perfect time for the Lamb of God to be slain for the sins of the world at the time when the Jewish people were celebrating by slaying a, a lamb, a living lamb, for remembrance of what God had done for them in bringing them out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt, into their own land hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this, right? So they're celebrating this, and they have been celebrating all the way up to this point in time in history. And at this time, as we mentioned, thousands of extra people would have been in Jerusalem. This has been a very full place of people. And so the, the leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin or the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus, they have plotted and hatched a plot to kill him. But they didn't want to do it right now during the Passover because too many people were looking. They needed to wait. But also they needed a betrayer, one who could hand them over at a proper time, a traitor who would know his whereabouts so they could capture him in secret and not have to fear the, the popularity that Jesus had um, gathered from the people. And so Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, comes along at the right time and he goes to the priest in order to betray him. Now Judas was chosen by Jesus to be one of the disciples, right? A trusted companion, as the psalmist pointed out. A friend. One who Jesus had loved. We learn that he was over the money for the group. He was the money handler. And we just learned from last week, he was so concerned over the poor, supposedly, that he was angry that this woman had broken this expensive bottle of perfume and anointed Jesus' whole body with it. This merchandise, instead of being wasted, in Judas's opinion and some of the other disciples too, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now we learn from John that what Judas is really concerned about was sometimes when he'd get, collect the money for the poor, he'd pull some out for himself, right? So what he was really concerned about was, man, that much perfume could have been sold and my take would have been pretty doggone good. So he's really upset about that. Interestingly enough, the money that Judas will receive for betraying Jesus, the 30 pieces of silver that's so famous, is less in value than the perfume that Mary poured out on the anointing and anointing Jesus. So we could say that Judas thought the costly perfume was too expensive to be wasted on Jesus, but he took less than that to betray him. To him, Jesus was worth less than what he thought the poor deserved. And further, what makes Judas' betrayal so heinous is to be found in its premeditation. Now, in the next few uh, passages, we'll read that all of the disciples betray him, right? They all sell him out. 
Peter openly denies three times even knowing him. But I think that if you look, and I know when we read, each one of them come back through repentance to Christ and acknowledge him and even die for him. And I believe each one of them probably surprised by their own sinfulness and their own betrayal. Can't even believe. I mean, Peter said, everybody will deny you, but I won't. But then he did it. Even in front of a little girl, he wasn't willing to admit knowing him. Judas, however, plans out his betrayal. Much like the difference in a crime of passion or self-defense murder and a premeditated murder, the conditions of the other disciples' betrayals somewhat understandable. Judas's, however, it was mulled over and planned out, and it even paid him. Put money in his pocket. But Judas has followed Christ all the way, and he continues to participate in the activities of the group, even though he's already been and set the stage for betrayal. Even partakes in the Passover meal with Christ. Then we're given this interesting account of Jesus' divine nature when the disciples say, where are we going to prepare for Passover? And he says, well, just go into the town. There will be this random guy with a jar of water, which apparently was very unusual in that day for a man to be carrying water. That was a woman's job for whatever reason. Unless you were a slave, uh, men did not carry jars of water. But Jesus said, go to the town with all these thousands and thousands of extra people. You'll meet this dude carrying a jar of water Follow him and he'll carry you to a man's house and tell him that the master has said prepare this and it'll be done. And just like the um, donkey that Jesus rode in on his triumphal entry, amazingly enough, Jesus knew what he was talking about because he had planned all this out in his divinity and all of it came to pass. And so they get there and they're having the meal and they begin to eat together and he makes this remarkable and stunning statement to all the disciples Stunning to all of them except one, of course. This statement of coming betrayal. One of you will betray me. And Mark says they all begin to ask, Oh, oh Lord, is it I? Is it I? And of course, Judas must have participated too. Is it I? Even though he knew it was him. And then Jesus says very clearly, It's one of the twelve. And I've often wondered... How did they not know, and if you read all the synoptic accounts, all the gospel accounts here, I mean, he even makes a statement, it's the one who's dipping the bread in with me at this moment or something. And then he says to Judas, what you must do, go do quickly. But the disciples are still like, who's he going to be? Who's he going to be? And there's some reasons behind that, I believe. One, um, for Jesus to say to Judas, what you must do, go do quickly. John explains he was going out to help the poor. That's part of what he did as the money handler. After, after the Passover, you go out and you, you give money to the poor. So they probably assumed nothing about it until later, of course, when they look back and they realize, man, this guy was a scoundrel. But they're all worried. It's a time of reflection, I think. I think Jesus does this intentionally for all of his close followers to just stop, to be stunned, and to reflect because a lot was about to happen, not only to Christ, but to them, right? They were about to go through some stuff. And I believe it was a great time for them to stop and just think about what's happening. Have they been faithful? I think it would do us well at this moment to consider the same thing. Have we been a betrayer? Are we now betraying him? 
Have we betrayed knowing him by the way we live? Have we betrayed knowing him by the things we participate in? Have we betrayed knowing him by the things we do in worship or don't do? Have we betrayed knowing him by the way we treated others? I think it's good for us to stop every now and then and think through these things. Because here's the truth. If we think about those things, you know what action, you know what answers we'll come up with? Yep. I've done it. I'm guilty. Here in just a few minutes, we will participate in the grace of communion. When we will participate in this supper that we're about to continue talking about. And what a wonderful opportunity it will be for us to thank Him and reflect on the mercy and the grace that He gives to us and the forgiveness that we have in Christ even during our times of betrayal. Even in the times that we fail to do what we know to do. When we choose to do what we know is wrong or when we fail to choose to do what is right. Now it's interesting to consider Judas's plight right here in light of verse 21. He... Most people, and I've read a lot of things, and you probably have too, where people say, well, Jesus says that he knows Judas is a devil. And why did he choose him? And why doesn't he do anything to stop it? Or why could Judas have chosen differently? And couldn't Judas just one day stand before God and say, hey, I mean, I just did what I was here to do. I mean, what else was I supposed to do? But Jesus makes this statement. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. In other words, this is going to happen just like it's supposed to happen. Judas will sell me out the way he was supposed to sell me out. But still, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better had he never been born. That's a remarkable statement regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So you say, well, Judas was made for this? He was put here for this? Yeah. Well, didn't he have a choice to not do it? Yes. But he chose to do it anyway, yep. And all the while, God's plan was perfectly carried out. Judas did what he was supposed to. Jesus still made this statement. And so it is still today true for every human being that hears the gospel. You are responsible to hear it, obey it, to turn to Christ away from your sin. And when you don't, Just as for Judas, it would be better had you never been born. There is no alternative. There's no second chances. You don't die here. Judas didn't get to go one day and plead his case. He went out and hung himself. It was over. His chance was gone. And I think Jesus makes that clear. Hey, this is going to happen just the way it's been planned and intended, but woe to the man who sold me out. It's an amazing thought. That's a hard thing to grasp, but I don't feel like I have to defend it. It's just what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign, man is responsible. I remind you that we're at a great, great crossroads in redemptive history. And really in history in general. Since Genesis in the fall, God has been dealing with man on the basis of sacrifice. The blood of animals being shed so that God could overlook the sin of man, right? Even the law through Moses comes. And men are given a specific sacrificial system laid out. God's 
people are to follow it. They are to shed the blood of animals for the remission of sins, the blood of bulls and goats, to placate God's wrath or to put off His wrath. But this is good only until the next sacrifice, right? Because as Hebrews points out, the priests had to stand daily in the temple, continually offering sacrifice. Why? Because people continue to sin. And this sacrifice that God used and allowed through the bulls and goats and even smaller animals was only good until the next offering could be made. Until the Messiah came. Until the Son of Man came. And He is here now. We are at that time. We are at that crossroads. Jerusalem, and more importantly, her temple of sacrifice is about to be demolished. Physically and metaphorically. It's about to be raised. Cleared out. Never to be brought up again. We've talked about that a pretty good bit. There will be no more temples. Why? Because the thing that the temple pointed to, the very person that the temple pointed to was here. He is here. He is Jesus. Everything that went on in the temple pointed to Christ. He fulfilled it. That's why he said, you destroy this body in three days, I'll raise it up. Not another temple made out of marble. He had raised up the temple. And I pointed out this fact. Every time in the New Testament, save one time, the temple is mentioned. It is used metaphorically either of Jesus himself and his body or the body of Christ. The true temple of God was about to be raised. The true sacrifice was about to be made. What the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Christ was about to do. This is truly a great crossroads. The end of one era and the beginning of another. And also, the ending of an old covenant and the beginning of a new covenant. All this was taking place. It was an amazing time in redemptive history. It was an amazing time in the history of man, period. All of man's history is redemptive history. And so at this point, Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. After the feast of the Passover, after this lamb had been slain and they partook, eating the lamb. And it's assumed that now Judas is gone. The meal is over. Judas has gone out to do his betraying. And Jesus institutes this great supper. He breaks the bread. And he gives it to him, and he says, this is my body. He takes the cup. They've already taken several cups by this point. The diluted wine, and they're drinking it. And he gives it to them. And, but first, he drinks it all, gives thanks, and says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. The institution of the supper I remind you that this is one of the great ordinances given to the church. An ordinance is something simply that has been prescribed. And it assumes the ability of the one given the ordinance to be able to obey it. So if you are one of God's children, this ordinance is for you. If God has brought you out of your sin and given you new life, he has brought you from death to life, and you've been baptized as a result of that, this ordinance, Supper is offered to you. 
And you're given the command to take it and to believe it. And you'll receive grace through it. I remind you of how our confession defines the supper of the Lord because we're about to partake in it again. It says, The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. We just read that. It is to be observed in his churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself and his death. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment, their growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with Christ and with each other. Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in the ordinance also by faith inwardly receive Christ and feed on him. Him crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, not physically and bodily, but spiritually. This is a real thing that we do, church. This is a real moment of the presence of Christ being with the church and him giving grace. It's a great time of worship. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinances, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to all, uh, present to their outward senses. Now, it's, I think it's important to note, why are they going to so much trouble in our confession to make these things clear? Remember, these guys, fresh out of the Reformation, This is a big battle. What is the supper about? You had the Catholic Church at the time that says, hey, this is like a the Mass is a re-crucifixion, a re-crucifying of Jesus. And when we partake of the supper, the bread and the wine literally become the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. You're literally drinking his blood again and eating his flesh. And the Reformers say, no, 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 that's not true. That's known as transubstantiation. If you've had history class, you may know that word. Transubstantiation. You have the likes of Martin Luther who come along and say, no, that's not happening. But the physical body of Jesus is present somehow in and through and under the the elements, but they're not becoming the body, but the body is there. And then you have ones like Zwingli, Another reformer that was important, especially to Baptist history, he says, no, the whole thing is spiritual. It's just a time where there's nothing really physical happening. It's just a spiritual remembrance. It's just a time of reflection and remembrance. Well, then Calvin comes along and says, "Uh, I don't think transubstantiation is correct. In Luther's view of consubstantiation, where the things are just kind of there, but it's still the physical body of Jesus. Calvin says, no, there's something happening here, but the physical body of Jesus can only be in one place at one time, and we know where it's at right now. It's with the Father in heaven. So somehow in his divinity, Christ is present with his church as they partake the supper. It's not just a memorial. It's got to be more than that. There's got to be something really happening. Christ is here in presence with his present with his church nothing transforms the bread is a remembrance of his body the blood is a remembrance of 
I mean, the wine is a remembrance of his blood. And the presence of Christ is real in here, but nothing's... If you spill that on the floor, you just spill some grape juice on the floor, we've got to clean up. And if you drop the bread, you know, the rats are get it if we don't pick it up or something. It's just that. It's bread and juice and wine. But we, we've got to believe that it's something more than just, ah, it's just a time of remembrance. That's kind of what I've been taught my entire life in the Baptist church. I think because of our roots back to Zwingli, we're like, okay, it's just a memorial. We don't want anything freaky going on here. But I think probably Calvin has it more correct that something, this is real, this is important. This is a time God's pouring out grace on his people. This is just as important as the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, and the teaching of the word. It is a time to celebrate the grace that God gives to his people, and I believe his presence is really among us. That's why we don't take this lightly. It's a serious time, but nothing is transforming into anything. And so our confession goes on to make clear that as well. In this ordinance, our confession says, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor is any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin, of the living or the dead. It's only a memorial of the one offering Christ made of himself on the cross once for all. It's a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable and detracts from Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. In this ordinance, the Lord Jesus has appointed the ministers to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine in this way to set them apart from common to holy use. They are to take and break the bread, take the cup, and give the communicants while also participating themselves. The outward elements in this ordinance properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ have such a relationship to Christ crucified that they are sometimes called truly, though figuratively, figuratively by the names of the things they represent. As Christ said, this is my body. Symbolically, this is my blood. Symbolically, right? However, their substance and nature still remains truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So this doctrine commonly called transubstantiation teaches that the substance of bread and wine is changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood by the consecration of a priest. This doctrine, says our confession, is hostile not only to scripture but also to common sense and reason. It destroys the nature of the ordinance and has been in the cause of many kinds of superstitions and gross idolatries. So our confession is very clear. Hey, what we're doing here is very important. The Spirit of Christ is among us, and he will be. Just like Christ was present with his people there physically, he is present with us spiritually, and we celebrate this together. As we continue through this passion Narrative. We'll continue to learn important, important doctrines. But this morning I want to remind you of what I said earlier. As we pass out this bread and we pass out this wine, and we know that Christ is here with us, we ought to be in awe of his greatness, of his love and his mercy, and we ought to celebrate the forgiveness we have in Christ because it's real. All the handwriting of ordinances that were written against you have been nailed to his cross. All of them. There's nothing you have done that Christ didn't die for. Nothing you will do in the future that he didn't die for. Rejoice in that. Man, that's, that's something to live from. 
That's a glorious thing. You're not having to earn anything. Christ paid it all. There's nothing left for us to do but to celebrate Him, to rest in Him, to rejoice in Him, to worship Him, because He has done all that has to be done for the forgiveness of our sin. If you believe that, then glory, hallelujah, because that doesn't come from flesh and blood. Flesh and blood will sell Jesus out and say He's not who He says He is. I'd rather have the money. I'd rather have the things of this world. But a redeemed, brought to life person says this man is the Christ the son of God and my hope is in him and not in myself I hope that that's your story today if it's not trust Christ because it will be if you believe him let's pray father we thank you for your word and God we ask that your word will not return to you void we know that it won't because you promised it won't Help us to celebrate in the supper and this time of communion with each other as we celebrate what has been done for all of us. We are a church. We are a body. We're not separate individuals in here. We are the family of God, and we celebrate together what has been done for us on the cross at Calvary through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate His obedience, both active and passive. His keeping of the law because we can't keep it. We're lawbreakers. His suffering because we would have been crushed under the weight of the judgment of God. And instead of judgment, we get mercy. Instead of a law to live by, we get grace. And we thank you for that. We love you and we love the law. But we know that we couldn't keep it, so we trust in Christ. And we celebrate that now as we take the supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.